Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all you truth seekers from around the world. This is Karen Heasley, your host for tonight. And tonight we are going to have a really good show. We're going to be talking to Sharon Hatfield, and she is the author of Enchanted Ground. Now, I'm going to turn the show over to to Sharon, and she's going to talk a little bit about herself. So we all know what she's about. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Karen. It's so good to be with you. Good. I guess I would have to say that um, I've always been a curious person as a little kid. I love school. I love to read. And I just like to wonder about things. Um, I grew up in Virginia with my parents. I had have two older brothers. But as a child, I spent a fair amount of time by myself. And uh, I was really drawn to fairy tales, Um my grandma would read fairy tales to me, or I would read them. And then when I got a little bit older, I uh, really became uh, engrossed in Nancy Drew Mysteries. I was in her book club, and I was so excited to read those stories. And then uh, after college, I became a newspaper reporter. Uh, and I was very, very strongly attracted to nonfiction. I know a lot of people say, well, as a writer, I want to write the great American novel, but I've always been able to express myself better through nonfiction. Mm-hmm. If a story really happened, that's what I find the most exciting, if it's something that truly took place. And so I'm very uh, excited to tell a true story about Jonathan Coons, the spiritualist medium of the 1850s that I wrote my book about. Wonderful. And before we uh, go on, I want to mention that if people want to call in and have any questions for Sharon tonight, the number you can call in at is 657-383-0416. I'm going to repeat that, 657-383-0416. Now, I'm looking at the book in front of me right now, and um, how did you pick the title for the book, Enchanted Ground? Um, I picked the title, I think, because, uh, well, uh, Coons lived in a certain part of Athens County, Ohio, and he lived way up on a ridge, and he uh, he had seances there for the public, and he became very famous. But he believed, and others in his circle believed, that there was a special quality to the landscape, that the minerals, the rocks, the trees, that they had a certain property that that was conducive to uh, spiritual communication or psychic energy. And so I just decided to take the words of one of the pilgrims who came to visit Coons, and he called it the Enchanted Ground. Hmm. Okay, because the ground around there, like you said, has its... uh own uh, magnetic field, would you say, around it, the ground where the uh, the log cabin was or the spirit room? 
it had something there. Would you agree with that or not? Well, uh, that's definitely a feeling that some people have, and it's a it's a legend. It's part of the heritage of our county here. Um, as far as any scientific tests have ever been done on it, I'm I'm not aware of any. Okay. And also, what about the picture um, on the book? Can you explain that a little bit? I'm I'm fascinated by that. Well, the picture on the cover of the book is it has a circle at the bottom and it represents the earth and it has different rings uh, emanating out from the earth and then it has a picture at the top of the sun and on the left hand side it has like a cross but it's not necessarily a Christian cross it can represent different religions mm-hmm. and on the right hand side it has a thing that's a circular thing that um, represents the book of life where people's deeds are recorded. Mm. Now, where this drawing came from, uh, you have to go back to the Coons family. And the Coons family had an older son named Nim. It's spelled N-A-H-U-M. And he was one of the principal mediums in the family. And uh, one day, early on in the process, he gets the feeling that he's supposed to pick up a pen, and he's under spiritual influence. He's in a trance-like state, and he he draws this um, picture that I've just described. Okay. And it's it's something that his spiritual guide, King, has given him a vision of. That's a, and that's what it relates to is the the idea that you can spiritually progress after you're dead. That your spiritual growth or your journey doesn't uh, end necessarily when you take your last breath. You can go on into different uh, spheres of heaven, different uh, degrees of enlightenment, and you can still make progress. Okay, so that's a different, yeah, the the different levels. Okay, so, yeah, everybody starts at one place, I was trying to, and then they have the opportunity to uh, progress, correct? Yes. Okay, that makes sense. That's what spiritualists do believe in, that they believe, you know, there's always progression for the human soul. So that's good. So let's go. Let's dive in a little bit about uh, Jonathan. Uh, when I read the book, I noticed that Jonathan had visions even when he was a small child. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about his childhood yeah. in Bedford, okay. Pennsylvania, which is right down on the uh, Maryland border. How far would mm-hmm. you say that is from where you live? That's pretty far. It's on the other side. Yeah. It's far, because we're up by Pittsburgh, for it, so it's a little bit further away. Okay. Well, this is a beautiful area. It's mountainous. Uh, I visited out there to do a little research on the Coons family, and he grew up in Bedford right outside of town. He was uh, a German extraction. His father had served in the Revolutionary War in a German-speaking unit. But Coons was like many young people back in the 1800s. He was on the westward uh, movement. 
he was looking for cheap land, and so he moved from Bedford County, Pennsylvania, out to Athens County, Ohio, which it, nowadays is about a four to five hour drive. He moved in out here where I live in Athens mm-hmm. County in mm-hmm. 1835. He was in his early 20s. He married a very interesting woman from New Hampshire named Abigail Bishop, which I'm, I'll tell you more about her later. Okay. But he, he got married, uh, bought a farm, and started uh, raising crops and having children. And what what drew me to his story was that he he was um, supposed to be a famous spiritualist medium of the 1850s, and he uh, became really really famous. Although I didn't realize it until I first got into my research. Um, before then, I didn't realize what spiritualism was all about or why he was doing what he was doing. So it was a fascinating story that started out to be local but really it was pretty universal if you think about the implications of spiritualism mm-hmm. that yeah so the visions what did when some of the visions didn't they show him uh the um um i was trying to think of the word i want to use the spears the spears did they show him that when didn't he talk about that a little bit when he was young there was something that they showed him yes yes uh excuse me Mm -hmm. he uh, was raised as a presbyterian old school presbyterian uh that was his father's religion his mother was a lutheran but later on uh after Jonathan got to a certain age, he rejected Calvinism. Calvinism, one of their main uh, tenets is the total depravity of human beings, that human okay. beings are born evil, that they're, you know, hopeless in the sight of God, and only a few chosen ones will be saved, and the rest will go to hell. And he was very much against this idea that, that God had a chosen group. He wanted everybody to have a chance at spiritual uh, acceptance or progression. But to answer your question, yes, he did, um, according to some autobiographical sketches that he wrote later on in his life, he did have some very um, puzzling and strange incidents that would happen to him when he was young. And one of these occurred... When he, um, as a youngster, he had a mental health crisis because he had taken this whole uh, teaching that he had been given that, you know, you might go to hell if you're not chosen. You might go to hell. And he actually started worrying about this and having nightmares and uh, night terrors related to some of his religious teachings. And so finally one night he had a dream or a vision of a of a spiritual being who led him through the different levels of heaven and helped calm him down. And his mother said, you know, we have guardian angels and maybe that was an angel that was guard, guarding you. And so it helped him get through his crisis. He also had experience that he was 
didn't talk about a whole lot, but he felt like when he was a very young child back in Bedford that he um, was out one day in a field with his brothers who were farming and that he had an incident where he lost time and he had sort of a terrifying experience with that. So he had a lot of things going on in his childhood. He was anxious. He was depressed, but he was also seeking. He was also seeking the truth, and he was a young person who asked a lot of questions of adults, and that wasn't always a welcome thing. That's fascinating. So so take us on his journey. When he picked up where he was living, and then what? why did he pick uh, the place to go? for the spirit room. Okay, well we don't know exactly why he chose Athens County other than okay. you could get cheap land. He had come come out here a couple years before he purchased the land and he had gone all up and down the eastern side of Ohio uh, checking out various places where he might want to move. But he eventually did um, <clears throat> buy some land in the uh, Dover Township part of Athens County and the main reason seems to be that it was cheap it was mm-hmm. like 25 cents an acre and it wasn't the best farmland that had already been taken up because this area had been settled for uh, probably 30 40 years before he arrived here in 1835 so um, why he chose that exact place uh, we don't know was he led there in some way or was it strictly a business transaction now as far as his religious development he had become what he called an infidel by the time he got married he had rejected the church but he didn't know what he wanted to replace it with you see Mm -hmm. he uh so and it's even more interesting his wife abigail bishop whom he met in Athens County and married in 1836. She was a Methodist, but her father was a Calvinistic Baptist minister. So he he might have had a lot of pressure on him to uh, conform and go to church and be a regular person. But he uh, he rejected all that. He was an infidel, and he was searching. So when the Fox sisters in New York State first uh, felt like in 1848 that they were communicating with spirits through rapping, he was fascinated by that. He read about it in the paper. Now we think about, you know, Athens as being a very isolated area in that time period, and it certainly was, but he was able to get newspapers. He was an avid reader. He corresponded with newspapers, and he he was able to get word about the Fox sisters uh, who were just taking the Northeast by storm and becoming internationally famous mediums very quickly. And so he uh, wanted to go there and visit them and see what it was all about, but he was a poor farmer, so he had to wait until spiritualism came to Athens County which it did right in the early 1850s. 
So only like two or three years after the Fox sisters made their advent onto the scene, he goes to a seance in his neighborhood. And this is a very classic um, motif throughout history. A lot of people will say they start out, you know, opposing something or persecuting something, and then they flip and they become part of the movement. So Jonathan Coons goes to this uh, house of the Paston family, and there's a young lady there who's a medium, Mm-hmm. And he thinks he's going to do some kind of expose and show that this is all fake. But instead, he goes there, and the medium tells him, Coons, you are going to become a medium yourself. You are you have all these talents that you don't realize, and you need to go home and develop them. And so uh, Jonathan did this over a period of about six months, Um he was already a person given to meditation, and he and his wife um, started studying this. And also, Jonathan uh, would meditate, and then he would uh, do automatic writing. And from there, uh, his children got involved, and they went on. It's almost like, uh, well, each one is learning a skill within the whole uh, spectrum of mediumship. Some are learning the rapping, some are learning uh, visionary techniques and different things. And so from there he goes on and starts having uh, seances in his home for the neighbors. Jonathan lived in a double log cabin. It was a two log cabins put together with a fox trot, like a breezeway through the middle, which was a typical German settler construction for this area. And so he would have people over, and it just became uh, too crowded in his home. And so he felt led to build a spirit room next door to his log cabin. And the spirit room uh, opened to the public around the end of August in 1852 and just became enormously popular. People came from all over Ohio. They came from neighboring states, and they also came from New York, New England, and even overseas to this very remote place because they wanted to see what was going on. Now, when he did the spirit room, did he have specific instructions from the spirit world how they wanted him to construct this room? Yes. And he writes about this uh, in a book called A Book for Skeptics, which was edited by Dr. Everett. And he writes about how he was told what to put in the room. So he builds a a log cabin with a peaked roof, and on one end of it he puts what he calls a spirit machine or spiritual battery. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look at the history of spiritualism back in the day, uh, the Victorian ones, they loved their machines. Uh, John Murray Spear had tried to invent a perpetual motion machine in New England along about that same time. But also uh, Coon's machine, he said that it would enable the spirits to uh, concentrate their energy and to have better 
manifestations. Now, the spirit machine was a six-foot-long wooden table, and it had different bells and whistles and wires on top. And uh, some people said, well, it's got zinc and copper, so this is a primitive battery. And other people went there who had scientific training who said this doesn't produce electricity, it doesn't conduct it, it's a piece of furniture. So there was a difference of opinion. But the spirit room was on one end, and then uh, right in front of it they had the medium's table. Jonathan, his uh, wife Abigail, and son Nim would sit at the medium's table with their backs or their sides to the audience. So on the other end, you had uh, theater-type seating. He had put in benches, and they were slightly elevated so that people could at least see what was going on before the lights were put out because the seances were conducted in total darkness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so they... Uh... Was there a time, um, I remember in a book reading, there was a time he got really frustrated with things, and uh, was it because the room wasn't what they wanted and they wanted him to change some things? I'm just asking, because I know he got frustrated sometimes. Um, yeah, he got frustrated because um, when he was trying to build the machine, uh, he had gotten instructions from the spirits, but somehow he thought, the message had gotten garbled, and he wasn't building the machine the way it was supposed to be. And he got really frustrated and threatened to just tear it up and burn it in the fire. And And his uh, wife begged him not to do that. And he finally kept working with it and got it the way he thought the spirits wanted it. Yeah, I knew he, I knew I read that he got frustrated. So... Okay, so I'm trying to construct this for our audience out there that's listening. So once the room was constructed, um, didn't they have to go out and find musical instruments, certain ones to put in the room, they were told? Yes, that was the next step. Uh, After they had gotten the room uh, fixed up, Jonathan was told that he needed to find certain musical instruments to put in the room and I should mention to you that he was already a fiddle player he had learned to play the fiddle back when he lived in Pennsylvania and this was something that was a very uh, crowd pleasing thing they loved to hear him play if you can imagine this is a time with no computers no TV, no radio so to hear a live performance was just a wonderful thing Mm-hmm. And it still is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, but uh, especially yeah. back then. So uh, he he played the fiddle, but uh, he and his son went out, and they eventually were able to get these other instruments, um, like a guitar and uh, harmonica and so forth, along with a dinner horn. It wasn't a trumpet, like with valves on it, but... They also had a dinner horn that they used in their services. That's fascinating, all the different things. Now, I have to say that um, he was the first one to introduce uh, Trump, the trumpet in the seance. Now, 
you know, mediums don't really use a trumpet like we know a trumpet. It's a different kind of trumpet. Now, did he mm-hmm. use that kind of trumpet as well, the kind that that uh, are in seances now? You'll see mediums using trumpets. You know, I honestly don't know. Maybe some of your readers would know more. I mean, your listeners would know more yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, I'm not because sure it's the same, but um, mm-hmm. it was a big breakthrough because um, it was a technological breakthrough because Coons was getting all these sermons. Okay. He had a spiritual guide named King, K-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, he was getting all these sermons and instructions. And see, they first tried to record all this through rapping. Okay. And so, like, one one rap might be yes and two raps might be no. Or or they would count go through the alphabet, like, you know, mm-hmm. three raps might be a C. So it was a very laborious process to try to get any kind of detailed or complicated message through rapping. And so uh, Coons is credited by most scholars of religion, either he or his son, Nim, uh, with coming up with this idea of having the messages come through the trumpet when they, so they were spoken rather than the rapping and yeah. enable them to have more complicated conversations. It would be direct voice what we call coming through the yeah. trumpet voice. So, yeah, right. so they did use it in that, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. So they did use it in, in that way. That's good um, <clears throat> because he's credited with that. As we say, he's also credited with uh, automatic writing. When he did the automatic writing, would he get things from the spirit world? Yes, he did get things from the spirit world, and... Uh... That part to me is really clear. I mean, mm-hmm. that he could have been on an unconscious um, vibe, you know. He could be receptive if you think about information floating around and certain people can tune into it and other people can't. Uh, to me, that makes total sense. But I guess the part that was a little bit harder for me personally to understand is he said that um he would leave blank paper in the spirit room Mm -hmm. and lock it up at night Mm -hmm. and come back in the next day and there would be writing on the paper from the spirits and that to me that was kind of hard to understand okay so they just yeah um I wonder. I was wondering too if they had some outports that came from the spirit world doing this, doing the seances in the spirit room. I just wondered if they did had some of those outports that would come from the spirit world. They would something might show up on a table or on the floor, and it would be from the spirit uh, spirit people. I never heard of any reports of that, but I do okay. know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. But I don't. I don't remember it being in any of the reports. Okay, that's what I wanted because I I read that and I didn't notice it either, and that's why I wanted to bring it to your attention. That maybe I missed something, you know. So there mm-hmm. there might have no, been. I don't it think it did. They report it. They could have. But I could tell you a little bit about um, the order of events that he had in his uh, 
programs. Okay. He developed a very specific uh, ritual that he, he Jonathan, would follow. Mm-hmm. And first he would have the people come in and be seated in the spirit room, which was the log cabin. And they had the windows, uh, you know, with curtains or shades or shutters so that no light would come in. And once everyone was seated, he would be with a candle, and Coons would blow out the candle, and then everybody would be plunged into darkness. And uh, the first thing that would happen is Jonathan would start playing his fiddle. And then suddenly there would be this crash, this big loud sound of a drum. I've forgotten to tell you they did get drums too. A oh, bass, okay. A bass mm-hmm. drum and a smaller drum were part of it. Um, and so there would be this crashing sound and it would startle everyone. could be heard way out into the forest. And then other instrument other instruments would start to play in along with the fiddle. And so they would have a musical program. And one thing that was fascinating to me, I could never uh, find any reports of what kind of songs they were singing. Uh, people would say it was angelic music, it was beautiful harmony, but they never said specifically what words uh, were being said or it could have just been kind of like chanting in some cases. But So once they had the musical part of the program... Um, then Coons, uh, excuse me, King would address the audience through the trumpet, um, which someone asked me the other day, well, how do we know that the trumpet levitated? And I honestly don't know, uh, other than if they were just going by sound, like they heard the trumpet above them, and so they presumed that it was rising up, or... Was it that the coons had put phosphorus on the trumpet, and therefore it was illuminated? They had a phosphorus solution that they could apply to things, and it would make them glow in the dark. So they could have applied it to the trumpet. It sounds like they might have, and that's how people knew what the trumpet was doing. You know, if it was mm-hmm. total darkness, they would have to use something. So I'm, I'm thinking that's probably what they did. So then after the king would give his messages, uh, some of which were very uh, heavy philosophical messages and others were joking around, kind of entertaining the audience. After that, then they would, sometimes they would have other phenomena and sometimes they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. It seemed to depend on like the power of the signal or the level of emotion that they had that evening, the psychic energy, um, because sometimes they would have these uh, disembodied hands that would appear, and they would be lit up with the phosphorus, and they would come out and write messages uh, to people. Mm-hmm. And this was like what everybody wanted to see. That's what they thought if they came there and they got to see the hands, and it was a very successful evening. So you can see there was a very uh, strong theatrical element to this. 
And most people who went there came away feeling like that they had had contact with spirit, the spirit world. And others, a few of them were skeptics who thought that the events were not real or they weren't from the spirits. So it's a matter of interpretation for each one who went there. Very much so. Mm-hmm. And I was not able to, you know, pull back the veil and say, here's what happened, uh, how are these effects created. My role was looking at, you know, what's what did these religious practices mean to the people who were doing them and how did it affect their a way of looking at the world, at society, and at their own inner self. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that they had some type of spirit communication in these seances. I would, I'm sure of that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Jonathan's wife. I would love to talk about his wife because. One of the things I discovered very quickly is back in the Victorian era, we're talking about 1850s, 1870s, um, women did not get very much press at all. They were very seldom ever mentioned in the newspaper. Uh, 99% of them didn't write letters to the editor. And so it was just very hard to get information about Abigail. But I can tell you a few things that... I was able to find out. Uh, Jonathan met her uh, in the summer of 1836. They had a pretty uh, quick romance, and they got married that fall. And they were both 25 years old when they got married. And one of the things that he, he wrote, like about 12 or 13 very long essays about his uh, life, he only mentions Abigail in one paragraph. So what he did say is he liked that she was an independent woman and a free thinker, that she uh, that she did think for herself, which to him was an incredible attribute in a man or a woman. He thought people should not rely on the clergy or priests or authority figures to develop their own spiritual life. He felt like people should have a direct connection and being able to think through issues as opposed to just applying dogma. Mm-hmm. And so he he liked that about Abigail. And she also had talents as a healer. So it complemented very much the things that he was doing. She um, She would go into a trance-like state and she would uh, do remote viewing. Are you familiar with that yes. term? Mm-hmm. So she yeah. would do remote viewing. And in one case, a visitor had come from Canada and said, you know, my friend back home is really badly uh, suffering from, we don't know what disease, but he's very ill and could you please do something for him? And so... She went into her remote viewing mode and saw his apartment back in Canada and described mm-hmm. everything there and described what was wrong with him and presumably offered some kind of 
solution. Now, I have to say for the modern reader, you know, I don't think we're all going to go out and just abandon the medical profession mm-hmm. uh, and rely on remote viewing. But the medical profession back then, uh, it was it was a lot uh, more primitive than it be- later became because uh, they would give the traditional physicians would give people arsenic or mercury compounds or they would put uh, addictive things like laudanum in their medicines and so and they would bleed them you know in some cases Mm -hmm. so so the herbal doctors in a way back then they were doing a lot less harm and probably some good too and she was an herbal doctor when she would go into these trances she would uh you know, prescribe herbs, and she also compounded these things uh, when she wasn't in a trance state. So she was very valued for her healing abilities. That's interesting. I didn't realize she was an herb, you know, did a lot with herbs, and it was in there, yeah. That's that's really interesting. So Jonathan, so there were people that didn't care for Jonathan too much, right, in the community because he was a, um, into spiritualism, would you address that? Is that correct? What I got from the book? Yes, you're right about that. He was seen as a threat to the established order, and uh, according to him, a lot of people in the Christian pulpits preached against him and said he was a child of the devil because uh, that a lot of people felt like if you had psychic abilities or you had an ability to communicate with the dead then uh, you know they did some of them might have seen it as a god-given talent which i believe that it is but other people would have thought well the devil is behind this and jonathan coons is promoting devil worship and so a lot of misinformation spread about exactly what he was doing there in the uh, spirit room and uh, very early on in his ministry or his performances he called them demonstrations mm-hmm. um, there was a crowd of I assume men I don't know that women were involved but what the newspaper called drunken rowdies and so uh, shortly before Christmas in 1852 the drunken rowdies uh, set his barn on fire one night and uh, they burn up his wagon and the crops he had harvested in 1852 were burned up and his farming utensils so this was a big blow to coons um but some people got the impression that burning down his barn would uh, cause him to stop what he was doing but far from it uh He did not let that stop him, and uh, later on, uh, he was a big believer in karma, and later on he said that the two ringleaders in this arson attack, he didn't give their names, but he said one of them took ill and died, and the other was crushed to death under a wagon. Well, that's something. He also... um would write to um, to spiritualist papers, right, or spiritualist magazines, and 
Um, didn't he do some articles for that in some of the spiritualist magazines in the day? Yes, and it was really a blessing for me that he did that because uh, uh, we have a lot of Jonathan Coon's own words because he uh, wrote in accounts of things to the paper or he would get in disputes with people and he would write letters to the editor and argue with them. He loved a good fight. But he um, he was able to win a lot of influential supporters through um, his connections to the newspapers. The Spiritual Telegraph, mm-hmm. the Christian yeah. Spiritualists, and many others were mm-hmm. happy to run his articles. And a lot of those now are available online. So to have his own words was very important to me. Yes. Um, it's fascinating because you had his own words. Hey, we have a couple callers. You're going to take them. We'll see what they have to say. And then we'll go on, okay? So hold on a second. Sounds good. Hi, welcome to the True Seeker Show. Was there a question you would like to ask Sharon tonight? Hi, yes. Uh, my name's Debbie, and um, I read your book and found it extremely interesting. The one thing I know, I have a couple questions, actually. Uh, but the first question I found in the preface, you, uh, if you recall writing uh, the sentence that says, I soon realized that the story was as much or more about the power of ritual and belief than about an actual physical reality. And I was hoping maybe you could expound on what you meant by that. Well, when I first started out, I have a journalism background, and thank you so much, Debbie, for reading the book. I appreciate you your interest. Um, I guess what I meant by that was, and if you're studying a religion, uh, some people tend to focus on the actual, is it literally true what we're reading in our sacred texts? Is it literally true, or could it be symbolically true? So that's sort of what I was looking at. Uh, We don't really think too much about, uh, well, did Jesus walk on the water or not? Was that really literally true? Or was it more important what it symbolized to other people? So I was focusing more on the beliefs that people took away and how it gave them the idea that their souls were immortal, their spirits would survive death, and how that just brought so much joy to people's lives. I was looking at that more than trying to do a scientific analysis of it. Okay. Well, a follow-up question to that is, like throughout the book, uh, there were various people who claimed that the Coons family were frauds, and then there were other people that wanted to support their work and said it was actually happening. And I was wondering how, what you took away from that. Did you find that what they were doing as something that actually happened, or did you feel like they were just making it all up and really just being frauds themselves? Well, <clears throat> that's one reason why I'm, I've been so fascinated with the Coon story for these many years, because... <clears throat> Excuse me. Once uh, Coons shut down the spirit room and he left Ohio in 1858 and moved to Illinois, 
he remained a spiritualist. And I feel that he sincerely was a spiritualist, that he he believed it with all of his heart. He continued to do seances up almost until his death in 1893. He had private devotions in his home. His children remained spiritualists for a couple more generations. So I do believe he was sincere in his belief. But I also think that... Uh, that some of the special effects in the spirit room, he he did those, or his family assisted with those. Now, as far as some of the mental aspects of this, I find that they very well may have happened. For example, a lot of people who would come to visit Coons, they would come under an assumed name, either because, they were embarrassed. They didn't want people to know that they were interested in this. Or it could have been uh, that they were doing it as a test to Coons to see if he knew their real names. And several people reported that they never told him their real name, but somehow he knew about it. Wow. And so, and then you have the the instances I gave with um, with Mrs. Coons being able to do her remote viewing and have mm-hmm. accurate uh, results. Mm-hmm. So to me, it is a very murky issue. I'm so glad you asked that question, Debbie, because he's a fascinating character to me because mm-hmm. he's a mixture of sincerity and yes. and a little bit of showmanship, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do have a couple more questions, if that's okay. Um, can you hold on until we take a couple more sure. and we'll come back to you? Sure. Okay. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. What kind of question do you have for Sharon tonight? Hi. My name's Jerry, and I read the book this summer, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I uh, had a few questions, too, about uh, Jonathan Coons. He he had spirit communication from different members of his family that had passed on, like his uh, when his brother George died and... His daughter wrote a poem, and he said his father sent him an affectionate poem that the spirits wrote in his journal. Um, And I just wondered if anybody had spirit communication with John Kuntz after he passed away, or did he have any spirit communication with his wife Abigail when she passed away? Well, that's a wonderful question. Yeah. one thing that I was able to get from one newspaper, um, just one tiny article, it did. It was written by a friend of the family, and he said that after Coons, after Jonathan passed, that his son Nim was able to communicate with him on a regular basis. Oh, yeah, they did have but I don't I don't know about Abigail. I was just not able to find out anything about that. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't it have been great to know what he said to, to yes. his son? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other thing I wanted to know, if there was any documentation of any of the spirit. It, you said he wrote a book. Um, are there any documentations of, like, King's um, whatever he gave his sermons and stuff, are they documented? Or, or are there any paintings left uh, uh, 
King did. He was supposed to be a master painter. Okay, let me see if I can break those down. Um, in the book, A Book for Skeptics, which used to be online, it was uh, Dr. Everett's book that came out in 1853. It does have some of the sermons um, and some of the communications from King in the in the book. The thing about the paintings, I would love to know if any of them still existed because uh, because they really had an incredible creative scene going on there at the spirit room. Not only did they have the music, they had the art, mm-hmm. and they had, um, you know, just a real intellectual kind of salon there, even though they were country people. Yes. And so it would have been great if someone had preserved um, those paintings as well. But I do have an important footnote I could tell you. Um, I recently received a communication from a man in California who is um, a direct descendant of Jonathan Coons. And it turned out that his family all these years had preserved a painting of Abigail and Jonathan mm-hmm. that I had never seen before. It would have been wonderful to have it in the book. And so far I've only seen pictures of it, but it would just be great to know who painted that picture and, mm-hmm. you know, just find out more about it. Yes. Now I have a question. <clears throat> Did King materialize at all in Jonathan's spirit room? Because I know he materialized in the seance um, in England. Did he materialize in uh, Jonathan's spirit room? No, it was never mentioned if he did, but the Tippy family that lived yeah, okay. two and a half miles from Coons, and they were related to him by marriage. Mm-hmm. They were fellow spiritualists and friends of his. They did have they did report a materialization of of King. King, okay. Um, Jerry, do you have another question? Or, or? No, that's all. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Hi. Debbie, Debbie uh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I noticed throughout the book that you chose not to capitalize the word spiritualism, and I was just wondering why. Um, you know, I never really even thought about that. That's a oh. good question. You mean because, well, I guess because, because it's a like, religion, so I was wondering, like, if you put Catholicism, you would capitalize it, the C, and, but this, every time, that, the only time that you capitalized spiritualism was when you were quoting somebody else's words. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well um, if, I don't have a good answer for you. I really... You know, if you think of Christianity, that's like someone's name, Christ, so it's capital. Yeah. But uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, uh, I don't have a good answer, but that's a point well taken. Okay. Well, thanks. Okay. Next question is, um, how long did it take you to write the book? Well, I started working on the research in 2010, and I turned the finished book in in the spring of 18. So. It was about wow. eight years. Holy but smokes, I was that's also, a I was time. also teaching at a community college, mm-hmm. English, and writing during that 
part of that time. So I had a lot of papers to grade that, that slowed me <laughs> down. But Right. My last question is, uh, at the beginning tonight, you mentioned you didn't know anything about spiritualism before you started writing this. And I was wondering, during the course of the research and learning about this, did it change your mind in any way about spiritualism uh, or your beliefs that you held before? Well, as, uh, as Karen and I were chatting about before the show actually started, I was raised as a Baptist. I was raised to believe in heaven and hell and, you know, very uh, punitive view of the world. I had long mm-hmm. since given that up before I began this research because I didn't think the world could be that cruel. But mm-hmm. I have learned a lot, really, from this. Um, I learned about Swedenborg and mm-hmm. and uh, cool. the whole mm-hmm. idea of how people are judged, uh, you know, because in my denomination we were taught that, you know, God judges you, but the um, Swedenborgians believe that you judge yourself, that when you die right. you you have a life review mm-hmm. and you judge yourself and you decide where you need to be on this scale of spiritual progression. And so mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of refreshing and Interesting because the spiritualists did adopt a lot of the, or some of the Swedenborgian ideas. So. Yeah, that's and right. I, I would I would have to say um, I'm probably slightly less afraid of dying as, as a result oh, of doing this. Well, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for answering my questions. Well, those were great questions. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Okay. Now I have a question. Um, Johnny Appleseed. And when I think of Johnny Appleseed when I was young, they always said that he went around planting trees. But nobody ever said that he passed out pamphlets of Swedenborg. Never. So that was kind of amazing to me that he passed out the pamphlets about that. Yeah, he was... He was a businessman with the apples, but he was also very, very religious. And uh, he thought that Swedenborg was good news because it was getting away from this Calvinistic Mm -hmm. doom and gloom and giving people more of an optimistic view of of their soul. Yeah. And so, So yeah, he did did influence people even around here. I know. I was really amazed when I saw that. How about him passing that out for Swedenborg? Okay, we got two more people. Let's go. Hi. Welcome. Have a question for Sharon tonight? I do. Um, this is Pam. I read your book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so it was so good. The um, question I had was about the chart it's on the cover, actually, and also it's on page 102 of your book. And it's the picture of the spheres that uh, Nathan drew. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, uh, that was in 1853, and I wondered if he he got that information or is there any way to know how he got the information to do that chart? Because they talk about uh, spheres I think before he drew the picture, 
that other spiritualists had talked about spheres. I think Swedenborg might have. Could you give me? Uh, do you have any idea yes, about it, that? In the in the um, it's either in the book or in a newspaper article, but it talks about um, yes that he did go into a trance in the the spring of 1853, and it did result in this drawing. But I'm sure that. Um, other mediums and other places probably came up with similar uh, drawings. And, in fact, uh, the Tippy son, Ezra Tippy, also went into a trance, and he reported on a similar type of thing. I don't believe he drew anything. But the, I think they liked the idea that people in different places, mediums, were coming up with the same kind of structure. That's what I thought too. That it was it was uh, showed consistency, and I really liked the picture. I've read about the spheres before, but I've I've never really seen a picture, and I'm so glad you included that in the book. I appreciate that. that all the illustrations were great. Thank you. Well, thank you for calling in, and thank you for reading. It means a lot to me. Absolutely. Any other questions, Pam? I don't have any. Okay. Thank you. Unmuted. Hi. Hi. How are Hi. you? The Hi. Questions how are you? Questions we have tonight. Hello. You there? Mm, well, call dropped. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, you got a lot of questions tonight, Sharon. What do you think? And they were very good questions too. They were. And, so, and people had um, read the book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they read it, which is wonderful. Um, I have um, something to ask you. So what happened, what was the deal with the Davenport brothers? Can you pull that together for the audience out there? Because you do mention them in the book, the Davenport brothers. The Davenport brothers were out of New York State, and they were um, – doing a lot of the same types of physical effects as Coons was. Mm-hmm. And at least some, this was two brothers, um, it, instead of it being like a father and son, it was two brothers, and I think maybe a sister as well. But uh, they were doing a lot of the physical effects the same as the Coons, and uh, they sort of became rivals in a way. They, um, at least the Davenports felt like Coons was a rival. I'm not sure how they felt about him, but um, the Davenports started out calling it more or less a spiritual demonstration because they would have a minister get up and speak before they did their physical effects. Mm-hmm. And the way that theirs was different um at first, they started out with the dark room, and they did some of the same things that Coons was doing, but then later they developed the cabinet. Okay. They were one of the first people to ever use a cabinet for some of their effects. And then later on, they became internationally famous, and then they just dropped the spiritualist aspect. They just became stage musicians, not musicians, magicians. Magicians, yeah. That's what I read, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And they were kind of squirrely about it. They never would say, no, it doesn't involve spirits, or yes, it does. They just didn't like to talk about it. They just liked to focus on the entertainment part of it. And they were very did very well. You know, Coons never got rich off anything he did. And I do respect that ministers and people, you know, who are following spiritual professions, they do have to make a living. I mean... Mm-hmm. That's important, and but still, he really passed up some opportunities to make a lot of money during his lifetime. And he always said, if he charged admission, people would think he was in it for the money, and he wasn't. He wasn't. Yes, I can understand that. I think we have somebody else here. Hold on a sec. Hi, do you have a question for Sharon tonight? Hello? You there? Hello? Hello? You have a question for Sharon tonight? Um, yes. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, I was, uh, I'm reading the book. I read it a couple times, actually. Um, I, I was kind of fascinated about the... Um, you, you mentioned it earlier, and it, it's a lot in the book, and especially later on in the book how a lot of these spiritualists became entertainers rather than sort of spiritualists and sort of the rocky road of going down to the entertainment thing and um, the pressure to have a entertaining seance, that sort of thing. And uh, it seems as though that the those spiritualists, those mediums, uh, that when they got into the entertainment side of it more, that's when they started getting into the things that were easy to debunk, you know? And um, it, it seems, you think you were writing almost a cautionary tale for that? Yeah, I think you make a good point because as the as the latter half of the 1800s progressed, you know, things got a lot more complicated because you got the cabinet and then people are wanting to see full form materializations and so there's more pressure that way to come up with these entertaining things and so it was kind of shifting the focus away from the spiritual aspect of it yeah is that like do you was that intentional that you went that direction towards the end of the book that that uh bringing up the uh, entertainment and the, when they began to debunk some of the entertainers, so to speak, more, was that a, um, well, a direction you were Well, I was just more from a historical perspective, really, than just, I wasn't really, you know, expressing an opinion on it. I was just oh, okay. trying to explain, you know, how it changed towards when they went from the very right. simple raps, you know, in the 1850s all the way up to the cabinet and the the other things sure. that were put a lot more pressure on mediums. Okay, uh, I just thought I found that interesting. You know that that whole uh, story with that because it, it it seems to parallel things that are going on now. You know, the, the more of an entertainer they become, the more things people say are easy to debunk. You know. Mhm. Uh, 
I'm, I'm just seeing that parallel. You know, you see that the mediums on TV where they now it's coming out that they got information ahead of time and you know that kind of stuff. And it, it's it's a shame that it happens that way, but that seems to be it. And it doesn't. It's not new this year. This time it's around. It's been around for a long time. You know. That's true. I mean, that That's nice. very true. Yeah. So I, I I enjoyed that perspective, the historical perspective. Uh, so thank you for that. Well, thank you for reading and calling. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So I think when we think about Jonathan, though, I think he was really dedicated to being a spiritualist and to spiritualism. What do you think, Sharon? No doubt in my mind that he was dedicated. Um, and even late in his life, he published a book called Truth Seekers uh, Feast. He published a book, um, and he really gets into some heavy ideas about um, what what it means to uh, have a divine nature. You know, he started out with Calvinism and talking about how he was taught that people are evil. And then mm-hmm. by the end of his life, he's saying... Uh, He's saying that, you know, people have a divine nature, and it's up to them to to find it and to bring it out. And so the the responsibility is on us. It's not something out there. So he wants people to, he wants people to find their own voice, mm-hmm. and that's what he tried to do. He did. His son did, too. His son was very, I, I believe his son was very gifted as well. Fascinating family, and I've been so fortunate to uh, talk to several of them over the phone. Uh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you believe most of the, most of his children had some type of minimistic gifts in their own right? Uh, there's just so little information about the other children. The only one that was ever other mentioned was Quintilla, his daughter, who was caught up in one of the exposés up in Cleveland. So mm-hmm. uh, there's not a lot of information about the others besides his wife and son. And his son seemed to be a very, he was very much mediumistic. When you say, I would say after reading the book, he reminds me of a trans medium. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the last part there. Transmedium, he remind me of a transmedium. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't you? I think he was very gifted in that. Um, so the Tippics, they had their own spirit room, too. Now, they were related to Jonathan, right? Yes, they were related. Uh, Jonathan's niece, Margaret, uh, married Mr. Tippy after his first wife passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that their spirit room was the same as Jonathan's, or was there any difference between the two? There was an exact copy. They made theirs deliberately to look exactly like Coons as, as much as they could. The big difference was that they um, they said that they weren't musical, uh, so... They weren't musical, so how did they get the music? I mean, they did have music, and mm-hmm. 
they would sometimes have people in the audience that were able to play music to come up and play, but we don't really know exactly how they got their music. But overall, they they considered themselves disciples of Coons. They weren't really out there, you know, developing the trumpet and doing the uh, getting the messages and the philosophy and all that. They were they were pretty much followers, but he was he was glad to have them uh, in the neighborhood. That's wonderful. And there also was something that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle also mentioned something about Jonathan too in the book. Is that correct? I did read that. And... He was not very impressed. Uh, Conan Doyle, he just kind of dismissed Coons in his own writing, I think. Uh, just He didn't have much to say about him and didn't think he okay. was very important as a medium. But there was a definite bias, I think, uh, which sort of at times worked the Coons' favor because people would say, well, they must be real because they're simple country people and they wouldn't know enough to fake anything because they're too dumb. But that's just a bias on on part of city people. I, okay. I just I was just curious about that. And then uh, Emma Hardy Burton uh, really uh, really fought a lot of Jonathan Coons, right? I mean, there's two chapters about him in uh, um, Modern Spirit, American Modern Spiritualism. Isn't that correct? In her book. Yes, that was one of my earliest sources of information. Was that book? Yeah. So Emma Harding Britton did think a lot of Coons, and she she gave him the respect that she thought he deserved. Yes, she did. And so, I think that's. I don't know. I I just find it fascinating that you did all this work and and everything that came about in this book. It's a uh, it's sure uh, a history of uh, spiritualism in some way. And how would the, how did this book inspire you after you were all done with it? Well, um, as I was speaking there with uh, one of your callers, um, just the whole idea that he was somebody who marched to a different drummer, that's what I like about him, uh, that you don't always have to, follow the crowd you can you can do things according to the way you feel and and your life is probably going to be better for it mm-hmm. i do too i think he he did he enjoyed and he when he left he went to illinois right he moved to illinois yes southern mm-hmm. illinois mm-hmm. and he still did some writing didn't he do some articles for spiritless papers um, he did a little bit of writing, I guess, for some of the Chicago papers. He would send in letters and such as that. Um, and then a, what I call his autobiography, which was really a series of articles that was published um, in Lockport, Pennsylvania in the 1850s. Those were reprinted in the 1870s. So... Uh, he was getting well known to a new generation of people in the 1870s through reprinting of his work. I just found that after reading about him and 
sitting here thinking about it, I think he was a very passionate soul when it came to spiritualism. That's my own personal view on it. Well, it's always good to to know your history if you're, uh, you know, involved in a movement like you're in. And so I, I'm more than a movement, a religion. I, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate your interest and and taking the time to uh, explore some of these issues with me. I it's been a pleasure. And one more question, and I'll I'll, I'll let you go. Um, who would you say inspired you in your life? Oh well, I would have to say two people in that I don't know inspired me, which would be Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. Okay, I know you. Mhm. Okay. Those are the people who set me on my world view, I guess. That's good. And I noticed that the, in the book you had some pictures where you went up to where the cabin was, um, and the cemetery. That was another thing. You went to the cemetery. Yeah, I went to where the it, they did call it the Coon Cemetery, but it's really just two broken grave, uh, two broken gravestones, and two two graves in a pasture field. Hmm. Okay, and that and as far be... as the uh, as far as the exact location of the uh, spirit room, no one really knows. So they don't <laughs> know where it that's is. That's another mystery location. to solve. Oh, that's interesting. They don't know. But that, it seems that people have been drawn to go up there, right, to that land, would you say? Yes, in fact, there was another, there were two other waves of spiritualist practice in that same area, which was uh, later named Mount Nebo. Jonathan Coon's neighborhood is called Mount Nebo. And, uh, in the 1870s, there was another spiritualist community there uh, from around 1875 for about five years. They were never as well known as Coons. And then in the 1980s, 1970s, there was uh, another intentional community there based around the work of the poet William Blake. So it has recurring uh, Waves of people interested in following a different drummer. Yeah, I, I noticed that. And one other question. I just thought about the painter that Coons uh, ran around with or engaged. It was, I can't think of the painter's name, right? The, the, Thela the Van Sickle is a, yeah. another interesting guy. Yeah, will you talk about him a little bit before we close? Yeah, Cela Van Sickle lived in Delaware County, Ohio, which was just north of Columbus, and he he had uh, hung out with the Mormon community for a while, and he'd written a, he has painted a portrait of uh, Brigham Young, which we still have today, mm-hmm. uh, and but he didn't go with the Mormons out west; he stayed uh, more out this way, and he. He got interested in spiritualism, and he became a devotee of Coons. He was really impressed with them, and he actually built a painting studio on their property near uh, the spirit room, we think, and he would come there in the summer and paint. And then if you look in the 
one of the spiritualist directories for about 1859. He has become a medium himself. So it would be so fascinating to find out if any of his later paintings uh, were still in existence because he, he went from portrait painting to doing very abstract, visionary work, uh, you could say under the influence of spirits perhaps would be mm-hmm. a way to look at it. And I would, yeah, I really searched hard and I called various museums and places and there are only, as far as we know, there are only two paintings of his in existence today. And where are they now, honey? Do you know? The one is out in uh, Salt Lake City in one of the Latter-day Saints. Okay. It's in their possession. The other one, uh, I'm not quite sure. Somewhere, I think, in the Midwest or Great Plains. That would be interesting to see some of these paintings. Like you said, because he changed his medium, you know, of work. But yeah, he credited Nim Coons with being his inspiration, too. So oh, did he? They had okay. a very collaborative relationship. Yeah, you, I'm surprised. So he actually opened up a studio by the spirit room or... Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, wow. That's, so that's no wonder fun. people thought it was a cool place to go hang out. Yeah, that is. That's that's fascinating. I would like to see some of those uh, uh, paintings. Um, no, that's just, I'm just sitting here blown away by that. I didn't realize all that. It's fascinating. So I think that's it. I mean, I'm so happy that you spent time with us tonight. Because you did a fantastic job of um, of with this book, so much historical things, and thank you very much. Because there's not a lot of authors that would take the time to write about spiritualism and and its uh, effect on uh, people. Well, I wish you all the best for your ministry, and thank and you. I appreciate you calling me up and us having this great conversation. It was great. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, Truth Seekers out there, that ends our show for tonight. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you for calling in with all your great questions. Take care.